0: Hi, Raphael Bender here, founder of Breathe Education, and you're listening to the Pilates Elephants podcast. There are many things that are awesome about the Pilates industry, however, many of the practices that we take for granted are out of date, illogical, or just plain pseudoscientific. These are the elephants in the room, and I'm here to talk about them openly and honestly, and with a couple of F-bombs thrown in for good measure. Pilates Elephants is about debunking the myths and giving you science-based tools to become a better, happier, and more fearless teacher who really fucking knows your stuff. Okay, well, I am here with uh, a bit of a personal hero of mine, Mr. Ivan Lin of Lin et al., and we'll explain what that means in a minute. So, Ivan, welcome to Pilates Elephants. Thanks very much. I don't think I've been a personal hero before, but there you go. Oh, well, I think uh, I think you have been. You just didn't know about it. Um, so, uh, actually, a lot of our Diploma of Clinical Pilates is built around the framework of your twenty nineteen paper. What does best practice care look like for musculoskeletal pain? Eleven common recommendations of high quality clinical practice guidelines. It, I'm sorry to say the name isn't that sexy, doesn't really roll off the tongue. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you could probably probably use some work in the naming department. Um, but the actual paper itself is sheer brilliance and we'll get into that in a minute. Um, but first, uh, could you please just give us a, an introduction to who you are and, and what you do?
1: Okay, so yeah, so um, so I'm a physiotherapist And I'm a researcher, and I'm a father, and I'm a community member. Um, I live in Geraldton in Western Australia. Um, And, yeah, so I spend my time, um, some of my time doing sort of uh, research work, academic-y sort of work, and I spend some time working uh, clinically as a physiotherapist uh, for an Aboriginal healthcare service. And I see people who have you know, on ongoing, usually persistent pain, musculoskeletal pain issues.
0: And um, you have uh, collaborated. The reason we're talking is because you collaborated on a paper that was published in, it was the BMJ, was it, in 2019?
1: Yeah, British Journal of Sports Medicine.
0: Yeah, Um, Mm. and uh, can you tell us... um, about you know what that paper is like. What we what what we're trying to achieve with the paper.
1: Yeah. So look. Firstly, I'm really, you know, really pleased to work with the people. You know, our, our team who worked on that paper was great. And what we were really interested in, we we're actually doing some work. One one of the areas we're really interested in is looking at um, what we know should happen when someone with musculoskeletal pain seeks care seeks healthcare. And what we know actually happens is usually something that can look quite different. And so a, a team of us were doing some work to try and uh, understand some of, these, some of these issues, I suppose. So when people go um, to get health care and the care they receive, you know, do they get the care that they should receive? And so when we, we looked around to see well, what, sort of, what could we use to determine if someone was getting the care they needed, there really wasn't a sort of framework which could tell us what you know what best practice care was across musculoskeletal pain conditions, and so that's where that's where this, this 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 work started. We wanted to identify is is there a, a framework which we can use to help us to understand if people are getting the care they should. So that's when we we turned that into a bit of a or it became part of our research project. Um, yeah, looking to. Looking at what had been done before, looking to identify some, some simple things that
0: should be happening. Okay. Now to, to kind of put a little bit of more context around that for listeners, you know, there are there are, when, when you say best practice care, you mean like what's what is currently known by science to be the most effective treatment for people with a given yeah. condition, right?
1: Yeah, exactly. So we looked at um, what are called clinical practice guidelines or just clinical guidelines. And so what clinical guidelines do is they, they, they s- summarise this whole body of research that's been done in a particular area. And so, you know, you find out what, I guess, science and research tells us. And then they gather a group of experts together Um, experts in in that area but it also includes consumer experts so it should be a really sort of a broad panel of expertise and then they go through a process of synthesizing all that information to come out at the end with a series of statements or a series of recommendations that should be used to guide care so these 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 clinical guidelines um, you know should really be I guess um, bringing all this information together the research information Expert consensus information into a series of recommendations, which are sort of simple and are practical, and that can help people, yeah, help help clinicians, um, can help the lay public understand what should happen in care as well. If they're if they're done in a way that, um, you know, is, is translated in a way that um, is easily accessible for the general public, yeah. And so this is a this, they, they can be really powerful tools to do this so so what we did with our study is we looked to to uh, we looked to search across musculoskeletal pain conditions so this is things like people low back pain shoulder pain knee pain osteoarthritis so a whole variety of conditions and we thought let's go and search for clinical guidelines across all those conditions and we were after clinical guidelines which had been published in the last five years and then let's bring all that information together and see if there are some common recommendations that apply across all these conditions. So, you know, not, not thinking about the shoulder needs this or the knee needs this or the is, – is there recommendations that are in common? And so that's what we were keen to identify, see if there's sort of an overarching framework that can help us understand what should happen when, when people front up with these sort of
0: conditions. Uh, and so the re- and so you know clinical guidelines are kind of like a how to guide for you know what to do if someone has back pain. If you're a physio or basically any health any health professional, um, and that you looked for guidelines that were not uh, modality specific, so you excluded ones that were like surgery you know, specific to surgery or um, any other specific modality. So you know th- so the beauty of what you've Put together is it's it's really broadly applicable for anyone who is a health or even fitness professional working with people who have musculoskeletal pain. Um, I'm I'm interested in uh, to just um, unpick a little bit why you uh, you know why you looked at multiple conditions so you looked at you know multiple body regions you know low back neck uh there's osteoarthritis guidelines in there you've got a shoulder um guideline in there as well um so you know why not just focus on you know one of the above like isn't it confusing with lots of different recommendations for different conditions in different body parts
1: yeah well i mean yeah i mean exactly i mean what what we wanted to know were was there some common what you know what were the commonalities across conditions? So we know that, you know, obviously there are um, you know differences you know, anatomically and and various you know between different body parts, but we know there's a series of general recommendations that almost everyone who comes in um and, and sees a professional, um, you know, these, these can apply to anybody um with with these conditions. And so I guess one of our research questions was, you know, are there commonalities firstly and if so what are they and and as it turned out we could identify you know quite a few common recommendations across conditions and i think i think this is really good because um you know it sort of gives us a really i mean this is sort of like if you like a this is a minimum these are minimum considerations that could happen you know they, we, we don't go and these are not sort of detailed recommendations this is sort of a minimum of what needs to be considered when someone comes in and, and sees a professional
0: sort of like a default set settings you know like you kind of you do this for everyone and then you might you yeah. know you gotta customize it for individuals
1: yeah, exactly. That's that's exactly right. That's exactly what we were interested in, whether or not, you know, that, that was reflected in guidelines. Because, you know, we see this in practice, you know. We see a lot of, you know, people who come in, um, you know, with a with a back issue, people who come in with a knee issue, people who come in with an ankle. You know, you know, there are certain things that are, are common to the way you, you work with that person.
0: Yeah, yeah. and I, I think um, I'm thinking, and I'm, I imagine you are thinking of – uh, there are there are several lines of research that have shown similar prognostic factors and similar um, uh, you know, natural history across pain in different body regions. Um, so uh, there was a study by Green et al. in twenty eighteen called "Clinical Course and Prognostic Factors Across Different Musculoskeletal Pain Sites," uh, and mm. what they basically found was that whether you had pain in your knee, your neck, your back, or You know, wherever it's like the things that predict recovery are not, you know, whether muscle ABC is firing in your knee or your neck or your back. It's actually things like having more comorbidities, using passive coping strategies, poor mental health, um, presence of workers' compensation, lower self-rated vitality, um, smoking, you know, things like that. So, so it's like the thing that the things that you do for someone with knee pain start to look almost identical to a lot of the things that you do for someone with neck pain or back pain.
1: Yeah, the principles are the same. You know, like I need to consider these. They're not going to, not everyone's going to have these, but you need to be aware of them. They need to be part of your framework in your head. So, yeah, someone with, with back pain who's depressed, who's who's a smoker, who's inactive, you know, and hasn't exercised for years. That's you know, the, those considerations are important. Some with back pain or shoulder pain or knee pain or you know, musculoskeletal pain um, of any of any body region.
0: Right, and, and I, I want to, um, you know, I, I guess I I really want to tease out here because I think there's a there's a there's a bit of a nuanced um, discussion to be had around, I guess I'm not sure how I want to frame it, like maybe, not chasing pain around the body, like okay, someone comes in with knee pain, maybe they've got a diagnosis of osteoarthritis, um, and you know, so you know, to what extent do we focus on the knee, you know, strengthen the quads stretch them you know whatever the other things are that we do for the knee Uh, and to what extent do we focus on things like oh well you're actually your mental health's not very good at the moment and you're uh, not sleeping that well and you've just gone through a marital separation and you know you've 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 you're feeling uh you know really uh at sea because the 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 pain in your knee is actually stopping you from playing with your kids and that sort of robs your life of a lot of meaning so it's like how do we weigh these factors and how much how much uh i guess uh yeah i guess how do we weigh these factors
1: yeah and that's i mean that that's the whole that's the thing isn't it that's the whole um yeah, that's the crux of it. So I guess the first thing is really to be aware of all the possible factors which might be at play. So first of all, you've got to understand. First of all, you've got to assess them um, to understand which are actually there and which aren't, you know, aren't, aren't present at all. I think the approach that I really like, um, which is, is you know, um, approach which has really um, uh, been well developed by Peter O'Sullivan and and some of the you know team members. There is around these um, behavioural experiments for people with pain. So, you know, not everyone who's highly stressed will that stress be directly amplifying their pain. Um, not everyone, you know, who's, you know, th- th- these, these relationships can be sort of complex. Mm-hmm. So, you know, one way is just asking people, you know, like, so your stress levels are high, do you see a relationship between your stress and your pain? And someone might say, no, you know, and, that, and that, that's okay. Other people might reflect on that and say, actually, now you think about it, you know, now I think about it, when I'm more stressed, you know, this knee really does bother me more. And so that gives you a bit of a starting point, I think. Um, I think it's explaining to people all the possible um, things that can influence their situation and then reflecting that back to them. We know these things can all have an impact on you. Which ones do you feel might be important for you? You know, that's that's a good way of disentangling it in a way that someone can buy into, and someone, and then can be inherently motivating for people as well to address. So it's 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 I guess being aware of them, it's assessing them. I think um, weighing them up is a I think it's a um, collaborative process with the person in front of you, um, based on you know their reflection, um, but also being very aware of of how these things can interact and, and what effect they can have on someone's pains and, and various body parts. Huh. Well, you yeah, spot there oh, oh, there are some tools as well which can be useful, which can help sort of um, to do that as well. There's various questionnaires and stuff you, you can use as well, which which can be helpful as well. But I think, you know, reflecting that back to the person, that can be, you know, very powerful.
0: So you're thinking about like the uh, what is it? The um Ourobro? Short,
1: yeah, the short form Ourobro yeah. is one tool which is you know multidimensional, quite easy to Use tools,
0: um, yeah. and you're you're exactly spot on with what you say about stress because um, stress can have opposite effects. Like some people actually, uh, stress can amplify their pain, and some people it can it can uh, 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 attenuate it.
1: Yeah, I mean, stress stress is always there, yeah. um, and everyone's stress experience will be individual to them. You know, certainly we know. You know, we can act as a volume
0: control to pain, but not everybody. Mm. So, all right. So basically you, uh, and this, you, and I think you had like, it was you and eight uh, co-authors on this paper. Yep. Yep. Um, And so this would have been like, I don't know, 2017, 2018, you you were working on this. You, you read, uh, you identified, I don't know, how, how many clinical practice guidelines did you identify a, around the world and, and how did you choose the ones that you ended up working with?
1: Yeah, so um, yeah, so like a lot of these projects, when you're trying to pull together, you end up with a number of thousands of things you need to wade through. In the end, after all this selection process, we identified that there were 44 uh, guidelines. This was in the, the five years Previously, because we know that more up-to-date guidelines are the ones you should use. Mm-hmm. Um, but then, what we did was we looked at what sort of quality these guidelines were, because um, ideally, you know, if you think about it, I'll, get, I'll give you an example. So, one guideline we looked at, which was, which I won't say what country it was from, but it was, it was, it was looking at um, management of, I think it was, um, you know, persistent low back pain, and one of the. Uh, one of the recommendations was around, okay, well, you know, you should trial this opioid, and if this doesn't work, you should trial this opioid, and if this doesn't work, try this opioid, you know? And so reading that going, oh, okay, that's an unusual recommendation. Because <laughs> that's, you know, we know there's a lot of issues, we know that's generally not recommended. And then when we looked at did this quality, we used, a, we used an instrument to assess quality of guidelines we looked at this instrument. One of the things is, you know, do they disclose who funds this? Do they disclose some of the potential vested interests of the developers? And so we looked through, and one of the funders, sure enough, was a pharmaceutical company, you know. And oh, so that's a good effect. And so clearly that's that, that's a problem, you know. And so we we did this process by we went through... Uh, these various criteria to decide which, you know, the quality of these guidelines, and we found that 11 of the 44 uh, were we would consider of high quality. Right, based so on not question. not funded
0: by vested interests who are trying to sell you their products.
1: Well, that's that's one example. Um, there's also other examples. You know, did they use a. a, a a really sort of um a rigorous method to to develop the guideline. Did they involve the right sort of people in it? So obviously you should have experts in a variety of different areas, did they involve consumers? you know was it was it um, clearly laid out? was it easy to understand? was it practical? all these sort of things. so, yeah, some of it's about the development and the, and the processes of it and, and who was involved and where, where, you know, potential conflicts of interest disclosed and how were they dealt with and all this sort of stuff. So there's a whole variety of criteria went through.
0: Right, and and you ended up with 11, like you said, and so and some of them were from the US, some of them were from, oh gee, Malaysia or somewhere. Um, they were from right around the world though, basically, but mostly, mostly the Western uh, sort of high-income countries
1: yeah, predominantly. yeah. Um, I mean the finding that only eleven of them eleven of them were of you know what we would have considered high quality in itself is a bit of a shame in many ways because um, you know clinical guidelines cost a lot of money to develop. I've heard estimates that they cost like a million dollars to develop. And so you know it doesn't really make sense. You know, there's the potential for a lot of wasted yeah. um, effort
0: if all these guidelines are being developed which aren't necessarily of, of really high quality. Um, yeah, it's not not not, not very efficient. Mm. And so you found only 25% high quality. Um, yeah. So, all right, so you've identified these 11 guidelines. You've got some, for, like you said, osteoarthritis, some for back pain, some for shoulder pain, rotator cuff uh, injuries, some for neck pain. Um, yep. And you basically, so you sifted through them trying to find common Recommendations that were that were in that were present in a majority of guidelines, and there were no contra recommendations in any of the guidelines.
1: Yeah, so we pulled out all all of their recommendation statements, and then we basically sorted through them all, and we sorted them into um, ones which recommendations which you should do, recommendations that you could do, recommendations that you um, uh, oh, God, I've forgotten the other um, Should, you not, should do. not do. Yeah. yeah, that's right. And that was based on basically what we needed was uh, clinical guidelines. If we if we pulled out, say, uh, 10 recommendations on a certain topic from 10, 10 guidelines in order to be a should do, then those guidelines all needed to say the same thing, basically. Mm.
0: Right. And so mm. the difference between the should do and the could do is the should do was like uh, – the, the language was more definite, and it was recommend. You know, it was, a, it was recommended based on more high and higher quality evidence. Higher quality,
1: yeah, that's right. So, if, for example, the research was quite clear that this shows that if this happens, then there's benefit to the patients. Therefore, that's something that should happen. If it was something, if it was a recommendation that uh, they said, okay, there's some research that supports this." Uh, this is something that can be considered then it's a could do. Right. Now, there's no there's no benefit of harms, then this is something that could happen.
0: Right. So there might be, you know, several smaller studies or one decent trial that found a positive result for it and no trials that found a negative result for it. Yeah, exactly. So it's like okay, we think this probably helps and it doesn't seem to hurt. Yeah. Um, and then there were some things that were should not dos and they were things that there was, you know, was there clear evidence of harm or clear evidence of no benefit?
1: Yeah, that's right. Um, I mean, yeah, I mean, what's what's an example? So perhaps it's not baby and not do, but I mean, radiological imaging, for example, that's, that's a bit of a bugbear. I mean, we know that. So radiological imaging, so, you know, x-rays, MRI scans, um, CT scans, you know, the whole sort of, you know, um, imaging. We know that that is incredibly important in the right patient. So if someone, you know, if, if you suspect there's cancer, then definitely that needs to be, you know, imaged and looked at and, and that needs to be picked up. But the majority of people, the, the, by far the way the majority of people don't have these sort of conditions you know, so they don't require these sort of imaging investigations. We know that people with musculoskeletal pain, that there's an overemphasis on imaging that happens. And the problem with that is, I mean, as, as many listeners will be aware, is that a lot of um, the findings on imaging, uh, a lot of the findings occur amongst people both with pain conditions and without pain conditions and some of those findings are reported in a way and using language which is really scary which can make people worry about their conditions you know terms like degeneration i mean how many how many people has everyone heard from within their either either people that they see or within their family who talk about having an old knee that's bone on bone and and these you know these sort of terms which tend to tend to sort of um yeah, they can cause quite a lot of harm. So, yes, so imaging is in the right circumstances, yes, but it's for the majority of people it should not be done.
0: Right, and so I'm uh, I, I I'm thinking when you talk about that of the Brinjicchi study from 2015 which found that, I, I can't remember the exact number, but say in pain-free 50-year-olds, something like 80% of them had uh, degeneration in their uh, discs on MRI. Yep. These are pain-free people with full normal function. Um, mm. And... Not only so. Not only is uh, and so you know these are things like you mentioned degeneration, things like disc bulge, um, pars defects, um, arthritis. You know, all fall into yep. this category of like very commonly found in people who are pain-free and and the severity of, of imaging findings doesn't correlate very well or at all with the severity of people's pain or disability generally.
1: Yeah, that's right. And it's not the imaging finding itself, it's the way it's interpreted for the person. So, yeah, if it's interpreted in a way that makes that person worry, you know, then that's 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 not good. It's not good for their recovery, it's not good for the way they look after their condition... And, and it's not good for the way they think and feel about their
0: condition. Yeah, and, and actually, this is where I'd really like to discuss this a little bit more, because I think this is a really important topic, and I know it's one that you've done some research on before. Um, so this is something where we get into something called, you know, well, I guess, for firstly, you know, a lot of people, and maybe if you're listening to this podcast and it's not your first rodeo with Pilates elephants, maybe this is not you, but a lot of people, most, I would say, movement professionals, would think, uh, presently, well, you know, okay, so maybe the disc bulge or the disc degeneration or whatever isn't the, quote, necessarily cause of pain, but like, what's the harm in just finding out what's going on in there? Um, and there is, in fact, harm associated with, with early use of imaging, and this is something called iatrogenic harm, and, and that's a <laughs> magnificently long word that just means harm that is caused by medical treatment. So basically, we're trying to help the person, and we end up, you know, inadvertently causing harm to them. And so, Ivan, I know uh, you've—I've got several studies, you know, showing that people uh, who have early MRI for low back pain, for example, end up having um, greater healthcare utilization, um, more opioids prescribed, more surgery, you know, poorer outcomes, poorer function, lower satisfaction with their treatment, you know. So basically, they—they, you know. If you're a pain-free 50-year-old and you, you're like four out of five pain-free 50-year-olds, you've got a degenerative disc somewhere on your back.
1: Mm. At one point
0: you get a back pain, which 84% of adults get at some point or another, you go along to the doctor or physio, or whatever. You end up getting a scan. Well, there's an eighty percent chance they're going to find something. Um, and if yep. if you if you include the chance of like a pain free fifty year old's probably got a fifty or sixty percent chance of having a disc bulge, or you know, add in arthritis and pars defects and whatever. It's like you've probably got a ninety nine percent chance of having something in there. And so that becomes very worrisome. And then you consider surgery and. You know, so, so, you know, this is a very real problem. And I want to talk just from uh, a little bit about the paper. And I didn't even know it was you until just today. Um, And I think I mentioned, I mentioned to you just before when we got on the call and I didn't know you were the lead author on this paper. This is the 2013 paper, disabling um, chronic low back pain as an iatrogenic disorder, a qualitative study of Aboriginal Australians. So when, when I, uh, when I, uh, when I, uh, Half a decade ago, I did a course with Peter O'Sullivan, and he talked about this paper, and this just really, really shocked me. um, What I learned. So, can you talk us through this? You know, what we learned from this paper.
1: Yeah. So, um, yeah. So, as I mentioned, I work um, predominantly in Aboriginal health care, not exclusively, and so I'm really, but but predominantly, and I'm I'm really interested in musculoskeletal pain. yeah, and as it presents uh, in Aboriginal healthcare settings. So, we did a study uh, where we interviewed uh, Aboriginal men and women who had chronic low back pain, persistent low back pain, and we asked them. Well, we we, we sat down and had a good yarn about their pain. Really, you know, what, tell us what's going on. Um, you know, what's it like to live with your pain? Um, what sort of effects does it have on you? And, you know, what do you think is causing this pain? What sort of things have you tried to look after it? And, you know, how's that gone? Anyway, so we had these long conversations, these, these, these long, um, yeah, sit-down conversations with people. And one of the things we were really interested to find, so this is um, people both in uh, like a, a, you know, a regional area and, and remote areas, And one of the things we found was that um, we we divided people into sort of, I guess, their level of how disabled they were by the pain, like they were severely disabled, you know, and that might be people who are unable to work, might be on a disability pension because of it, um, couldn't really participate in normal daily activities of living, Various, as as opposed to people who are either moderately or mildly disabled. And mildly disabled people might get the odd grumble in their back, but it doesn't really stop them. They can do most things and, and so on. And so... What we found is the people who were most highly disabled, when when we asked them, you know, what they thought was going on with their back, they talked about all of those things we know from the literature and we've just been talking about then, you know, that they'd, they'd had a scan, that their back was, you know, they had a disc bulge, that their back was crumbling, they had degeneration and, you know, and the future, you know, this is only going to get worse. I've got degeneration in my back, this is going to get worse, you know. And is so the people who were more disabled had these stronger, belief systems, and all these belief systems, you know, they'd all originated from their contact with the healthcare system. And so, you know, even people in remote areas, you know, the, the limited contact, this might have been used previously as well, I guess it showed, and the reason why we said this was the atrogenic, the reason why we said this was medically caused, uh, you know, issue um, Was because because of just this that these belief systems were uh, all about their experiences of healthcare, and it was amazing how sticky some of these things were. You know, people had seen someone you know ten, fifteen years before, and that 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 what they've been told them, which was this you know terribly worrying thing about their back, had just stuck with them and stuck with them, and and you know probably sort of then influenced. You know the whole way they they thought about their back, their, their optimism for recovery, the sort of things they did. Chances are, or most of those people, you know, like who are more severely disabled, you know, they weren't exercising. They were probably a lot of them were scared to exercise, and it, it was just, yeah. So I guess, I guess for us, it really showed um, the the potential for healthcare to be. Uh, Yeah, to be not only you know we know that healthcare can be very useful, but also in the case of um, chronic low back pain, the potential for healthcare not to be helpful for people and to actually make them worse, and that that was a real shame, I think.
0: Right, and uh, yeah, I mean, this was such a sad paper, Um, but so powerful. Um, And you know, a lot of these people's you know high levels of disability was like directly you could trace a line back directly to some you know well-meaning healthcare professional who a decade earlier had told them that they had bone on bone or that their spine was crumbling or that, you know, and that person had just taken taken that to heart and was now, you know, afraid to move, afraid to exercise, you know, feeling like they were doomed to, you know, just d- deteriorate, you know, indefinitely. Yeah, just
1: a, lo- just a loss of hope and just that idea, well, that's, that's what it's going to be like, you know, which is, yeah, you can imagine... It, you know, if you're told you've got something for the rest of your life, and that's what it is, when you're in a state of you're in a state of acute pain, you might have a like a flare up of your pain, and you're told, "Well, this is, this is what it's going to be like because you have this on the X-ray, and that's what it is." And so, yeah, you can see how that can really just maintain this whole sort of, this whole sort of situation.
0: Um, yeah. So, kids at home, don't use words like degenerative disc disease or bone <laughs> on bone.
1: Yeah, that's right. Or if, if you do d de- de-threaten them you can say because people might read their own report you say well look it says this but really you know this is what it's talking about talk about talk about all those other scans um you know of people with no pain and and they show similar things it doesn't mean yeah it doesn't mean it's a it's an automatic um death sentence
0: for you and the rest of your life yeah i like the the term i can't i don't know who i originated but wrinkles on the inside you know it's kind of just a normal age-related change
1: yeah,
0: that is a nice that is a nice way to frame it up for people. Um, all right, so let's so so there is there are very real, tangible harms associated with uh, excessive and early use of imaging, where imaging is not um, indicated by you know like basically we don't suspect that there's cancer or a fracture or you know some other um, red flag, uh, and so actually imaging was one of those you know do not do unless, um, unless I think the recommendation was don't do, uh, avoid imaging unless in the presence of red flags, which are um, things like malignancy, fracture, quarter syndrome, uh, or if it's going to change treatment. So mm. when, mm. when's an example of, right. So say we've ruled out all of those, you know, serious causes of pain like red flags. Can, is, I can't think of an example of when imaging would change treatment for say low back pain or, you know I mean maybe if if you'd had pain for that was deteriorating or something like yeah when when would that when would that come into play so
1: some you? so someone who had sciatic pain for example um, so someone has pain from their back going down their leg um, now the you know the natural history of um, sciatic is pretty good you know the majority of people improve we know that um, you know that, you know, generally that's a good outcome for people with sciatica. But there's a small proportion of people who it doesn't improve. And a small proportion of people, surgery may well be something that can relieve their pain. Mm-hmm. And so that might be an example where you have that discussion with someone and say, well, you know, look, you've, you've reached this point. The majority of people improve to this point, but but you haven't. You know, so, um, you know, maybe it's worthwhile Let's, you know, It might be worthwhile getting some scans done and, and talking to a surgeon to see if that's something that might be warranted in this situation. So, yeah, it's, it, that's, that's the whole balance, isn't it? Some of these conditions, you know, some of these conditions, it's not clear what, what the absolute pathway is. But in general, you know, the, the body's innate ability to heal is great. The body, you know, the bodies are fantastic at adapting and healing and this sort of stuff. But in certain circumstances, you know, it, it can either take a long time and, and cause a lot of discomfort and suffering for the person and so uh, or or they don't they don't repair as well or don't recovery's not not so straightforward and so this might be a situation whereby um some imaging might be needed to inform ongoing decisions
0: right, um, oh yeah that I mean that makes sense to me so uh, you know, when you say it's natural history, it's basically what happens if we do nothing. So, and like mm. you say, like, so we would expect, um, I can't remember the exact percentage, but the vast majority of people, I think it's in the 80s or 90s percent yeah. of people yep. with, with sciatica, you know, related to, you know, for example, a disc bulge or, or whatever, uh, are essentially symptom-free and fully functional within a year. And that's just like mm. the body heals, like you say. Yeah. Um, mm. And so, you know, I, I, what I hear you saying is, okay, well, come to me with sciatica, well, we're just going to do best practice care, we're going to address psychosocial factors, we're going to screen for red flags, we're going to get you moving, and we're going to, you know, do what um, Voltaire recommends and amuse the patient while nature cures the disease. (laughs) That's (laughs) cynical. (laughs) (laughs) And and then, bada-bing, bada-boom, after my magic treatment, a year later, you're pain-free. And, you know, you get to write me a testimonial, I stick it on the wall. Um, But really, it was just like, well, if you hadn't come to see me, you might have got better anyway. Um, but if we're doing all of the right things, and a year later you still got you know raging leg pain and can't feel your foot, well, that's when we might start to think, okay, maybe go get a scan.
1: Yeah, or even even earlier than that. You know, by three months, we know that the majority of people with sciatic pain should be. Well on the road to recovery. If there, if there's been no improvement, or if there's been any deterioration, particularly if that pain going down the back of the leg. Now I'm starting to getting some weakness. I've got a foot drop. My foot slapping on the ground when I'm walking. You know, and that's getting worse, or it's new then that's you know that's an indicator that there's some progression. Then that's an indicator that definitely let's get let's get this looked at. I definitely think a scan is warranted in this situation.
0: Right. So basically, mm. failure to respond to you know non-surgical treatment and or yeah. progression.
1: Yeah, that's that's certainly one of the situations. Absolutely. Um, you know, a number of injuries. You just. It you know, conservative care is is what you might try initially but they just yeah, for some reason people may not recover and that's that's a situation where it's worthwhile getting it investigated. Partly to check your diagnosis to make sure, but also, okay, what are the options?
0: Yeah. Um, and when you say conservative care, you're not talking about care given by someone in a 1990s business suit or something. You mean <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, non surgical care? Conservative right?
1: address care. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, that's right. So yeah, I'm talking about yeah, non, not not rushing off to the surgeon.
0: Um, all right, and so you. So we've already talked through two of the two of the guidelines that you identified, which were um, screen for red flags and uh, avoid imaging, where. Mm. Unless it's likely to change uh, treatment, there's uh, unexplained progression or failure to respond to conservative care, or uh, red flags present. So, what were the other what were the other key messages of these guidelines? Well, the first
1: the first um, recommendation is that care should be patient centred. Um, there are other recommendations uh, around assessing psychosocial factors. So, this includes both emotional factors. Uh, things like depression and anxiety, as well as beliefs about pain, you know, what, what people think is going on, what they believe the future is. Um, undertaking a physical examination of the person. Um, I'm sure a lot of people, um, well, certainly a lot of people have told me before, he didn't look at me. He just looked, you know, he just, he just asked me a few questions. People, um, undertaking a physical examination is important. Uh, use outcome measures when you're evaluating someone and their progress uh, patient education—it's really important—and so telling people or informing people about what's going on for them and what their management options are. Uh, providing management um, around physical activity and exercise—that's really critical, um, as I'm sure all listeners would know. There was um, a recommendation around manual therapy. So, manual therapies include things such as um, mobilisation or manipulation or massage. Or you know these these type of things. So there is some evidence for these sort of therapies. Uh, what we found when we looked across guidelines that if these were to be used, then use them as part of an overall sort of treatment uh, package, if you like. So not just you know just turning up and seeing someone who then does a click or a whatever of your of your of your back and or just presses on your back and then off you go. That's that's not recommended. It should be part of an overall package of treatment, which includes some of the other things that we've already talked about around exercise, around movement, around um, telling the person what's going on, all this sort of stuff. Um, And the other recommendations were, unless it's specifically indicated, offer evidence-informed non-surgical care prior to surgery. So that's that whole thing about don't rush straight to surgery in most cases. In some situations, you can be sure that surgery is the first line of care. So, someone that taking that patient we saw uh, we were talking about before, who had you know sciatic pain, if that person had some involvement of their bladder and bowel, which in you know you know and in, in indicates they have a severe uh, disc. Extrusion, or it's compressing their spinal cord, and it's interfering with their their other functions, and that's then they need to go straight to surgery. Right. But um, but it, but if not, you know, then a period of 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 watchful waiting, supported by, you know, good quality care, um, is what you want to try first. Um, And then the other area we know that can be really useful for recovery, so for people who are working, you want to facilitate ongoing involvement, continuation with their work or return to work if needed, because we know if it's a supportive work environment, we know that's really useful for helping recovery as well.
0: Right. So basically, you know, carry on as as best you possibly can
1: yeah with support though, mm. with support, and yeah taking into consideration that person's context, and, yeah, as I said, like work environments are not supportive, that doesn't help people's recovery. Yeah. Um, yeah, exercise, which people are told you just need to go and keep running and they just can't. Right. That's not supportive. Yeah.
0: <laughs> so um, so yeah, there are eleven recommendations, and uh, really uh, eight of them are you know things to do. So give patient-centred care, screen for red flags, agree on outcome measures, explain the condition and management options, give a physical examination, address physical activity or exercise, address psychosocial factors and facilitate early return or continuation of work. So those are the, those are the um, and I'll link, of course, we'll link to the paper in the show notes. Um, so those are the things to do. And then there were three things to sort of avoid, which was avoid imaging unless there are red flags or it will change treatment. Uh, use manual therapy only as an adjunct to active treatments, and offer can offer high-quality non-surgical care before um, surgical care in the absence of red flags or indications. Mm. So, you know what I love about this is it really—I mean, you can just you can turn this, uh, and what we've done is we've turned this into uh, uh, something we call the whole person framework, which is it's mm. basically it's just your <laughs> 11 recommendations turned into a, a process that is like okay what does patient-centered care mean how do we how do we do that so can can you um you know i mean you talked about it a little bit um but can you sort of unpack for us like if i'm a if i'm a movement professional out there listening to this and i want to give patient-centered care look what does that look like is that something fancy do i have to go and get a doctorate degree in order to do that like how do you, how do you do it
1: um, well i encourage anyone to get a doctorate if they were motivated and it's, yeah. Um, but yeah look I mean patient centre care is really about understanding that individual person who's sitting or standing in front of you and so by understanding that person and so their context what they know about their condition, what sort of values they have, what their needs are, um, what their goals are what their preferences are, you know it's through that process of understanding that that individual, and it's really about enable. Well, then it enables you and that person to come up with some sort of some sort of plan, some sort of uh, some sort of approach together, so you can collaborate. So yeah, it's, it's we talk about that as just the you know the foundation to all of these other recommendations for care, because if you don't have patient-centered care right, if you like. For a better way of saying it, um, then yeah, I mean, chances are you're not going to get you're not going to get the patient to buy in. Now that patient who wants wants a scan, you know, if you don't understand their reasons behind that, and you just say, well, look, you know, these guidelines tell me you shouldn't have a scan, and you don't explain it, you don't underdress some of their concerns, then you know that's not really going to help them a lot because they're going to walk in and say, well, that person just you know told me not to get a scan, whereas I know I need it. You know? Right. right. So pa- the patient centeredness is about understanding where that person's from and, yeah, uh, approaching that person on that basis. And so we we wrote a follow up paper um, where we talked a little bit about patient centered care. And what we know about patient centered care is the critical component of it is good communication. Mm-hmm. So that's the absolute founder. You know, that's, that, that's just critical. You want to achieve patient centered care, you need to. Need effective communication between you
0: and the person, and so in that, an effective communication. You know, what do you what do you mean by that? How do you how how can you tell if you? Because I mean, you know, everyone puts on their CV good communicator. So yeah. you know, so how can you tell if you're a if you're an effective communicator? What do you do?
1: Well, often I mean, I I think a, a critical thing is, I mean, at a very simple level. You know, if you think about you've got an interaction with a patient or a client, Who's what's what's the division? Who's talking too much? You know, who's talking? Give it a, give it a percentage. So certainly I tell students that we have come through uh, our centre here, you know, like I reckon 80-20, um, 80% patient, 20%, you know, professional is probably not a bad thing to think about in the first instance because it's amazing how I think it's, it's, it's amazing that professionals get quite caught up in what they need to know and forgetting what the patient needs to tell you. And so your role, I think, is to guide what that person tells you, but it's enabling that person to speak and to tell their story. So um, at, a, at a very simple sort of, um, sort of level, I reckon, just have a think about, okay, who's, who's doing the talking here? Um, and there's a whole series of skills uh, on the part of the professional, which you can also work on, there's a whole variety of skills which can facilitate that to, to be patient centered. And that, you know, simple things like you know, your balance between open ended and closed ended questions. Uh, the, the classic situation is professionals have a whole list of things they need to, information they need to capture, if you like, from the person. And they fire these at the person and a whole series of closed questions Do you smoke? Yes, no, you know. Do you drink alcohol? Yes, no. Um, you know, like these, these sort of questions. And really you want to know, you know, I would encourage anybody who who works in anything to do with, um, you know, healthcare or um, exercise and, and movement-based professions, it's, it's really about you know letting understanding that person's story understanding a bit about that person understanding their motivations understanding all of those things we talked about before and i actually think i think movement based professionals are probably you know naturally probably required to be really good at it partly because they need to be motivational I and mean, you can't motivate someone unless you understand a bit about them right. you understand sort of things so i think i think compared to uh, a lot of people who work in healthcare um you know, classically, orthopedic surgeons is the is the stereotype of um, where communication could be improved a little bit. Um, I think there's a lot to learn from um, uh, movement exercise-based professionals.
0: I think uh, I think you're right, but I think um, there's it also goes both ways that uh, as movement professionals, you know, when dealing with someone with pain or an injury or a diagnosis, you know, that sounds a bit scary, like disc degeneration or whatever. Um, mm. We can feel like a lot of pressure on ourselves to to need to know the answers and kind of be the you know the expert in that uh, in relationship. and so you know what you're describing there in terms of patient-centered care and those communication skills really you know shifts that frame from the professional as you know expert director to the professional as you know coach and guide and collaborator. and, and I love this model. Um, it comes out of motivational interviewing, which, say, which says that the uh, the the professional doesn't have all the answers. The client doesn't have all the answers. You've each got. Part of the answer, you know, the the professional no, has no, has knowledge that the client doesn't no, doesn't have, you know, knowledge about exercise and biomechanics and pain science and all kinds of things, yep. and the client yep. has a bunch of knowledge that the professional doesn't have, you know, their preferences, yep. their beliefs, their expectations, their fears, their you know their all of these things, and so what our job as professional is is to elicit that information, you know, figuratively yep. get the patient to put the puzzle pieces on the table, and then to, together we can try and assemble them.
1: Yeah, that's right. And it may well be you have a client who wants to be directed. You know, may well want to have someone who is very directive and that's the relationship that they they, they feel most comfortable with. But I guess unless you can understand that, then you're not going to get to that point either. I mean, most people don't want to be directed. <laughs> but, um, yeah, it's, it's about understanding the individual in front of you.
0: But even if, even if you directing someone it's pretty important i would say to direct them towards a goal that's meaningful and important to them
1: yeah exactly exactly yeah
0: um all right so patient-centered care that's important um and that really just involves asking you know i mean at a basic level asking open-ended questions like you know why have you come to see me (laughs) tell me your story um and and then you know shutting up (laughs) and heroically resisting the temptation to interrupt with personal anecdotes like, Oh yeah, I know that happened to me too. <laughs> <laughs> well, don't worry. We we can fix that. You know, not, not coming, not interrupting with solutions, um, but just listening. And it's actually often the listening is, is the, is often <laughs> a significant part of the therapy that is, yeah. uh, that people experience. Um, mm. all right. So I want to, um, uh, i I want to, you know, so, so basically, you know, what, you know, these guidelines, uh, these 11 recommendations that you've you've come up with, you know, i I struggled to hold all 11 in my brain at once. I, I don't think human brains are very good at holding 11 things in short-term memory. Um, so I always have to have a list of them when I'm teaching them. Um, and so what I've done is I've condensed them down into three because I can remember three. Um, and so I said that uh, give patient-centered care, screen for red flags, agree on outcome measures and explain the conditions of management. And we sort of smush all those together. And I've mm-hmm. called that build a therapeutic alliance, which uh, the definition, as I'm sure you know, Ivan, but just for those listening, the therapeutic alliance is where you and the client like and respect it and trust each other and agree on shared goals. Um, and then uh give a physical examination and address physical activity. If we smoosh those together, that comes into build physical capacity. And then all of these other ones down the uh, the tail end, assess psychosocial factors, facilitate early return to work, give imaging only if red flags, use therapy therapies and adjunct, offer non-surgical care first. So basically use active treatments and address non-exercise factors. Um, I've smooshed those into something called build psychological resilience. So we basically have a three-step process which, captures you know as best we can your 11 you know 11 key recommendations there and which really is like i mean when you when you kind of zoom out to the earth orbit and you just all you can see is the the outline of the continent of africa or something um and kind of squint it's like well it's just like shut up and listen um get them moving and you know build hope it sounds like a pretty good recipe for life, really. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and, and so here's the thing, like, you know, you've got a PhD, you had eight other people with PhDs with you, figuratively, I'm sure you did it over email, but figuratively in a room for a couple of years reading X number of dozens of papers, um, and each of those clinical practice guidelines will be based on, you know a hundred plus systematic reviews and each of those systematic reviews will be based on 50 to a hundred, you know, controlled trials or or whatever. So it's like, basically, Mm. you know, we've got a, a whole university full of PhD researchers, you know, producing tens of thousands of person hours of research that basically says, you know, try not to worry about it, get moving.
1: Isn't that always a case of research though? It just tells you what, you know. <laughs> Common sense, hopefully. <laughs> but I do, ideally it puts a bit of rigor behind it though, and maybe maybe it adds a couple of extra gems, you'd hope. <laughs> right.
0: And I don't mean in any way that that is disappointing. I mean that is freaking brilliant in my mind that it's there is a, a, a huge amount of rigor behind it. You know, there's there's probably hundreds of thousands of person hours of research in, you know, into this um, set of recommendations. And we, I think we should, you know, all professionals should take these very, very seriously. Uh, and, uh, you know, the world will be a lot better place. We wouldn't have people thinking that their spines are crumbling and sitting in a wheelchair instead of playing footy.
1: Well, I hope
0: so. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I, I want to shift gear just a little bit because I've got I've got some questions actually I put to my students uh, I let them know that I'd be interviewing you and a lot of them have asked questions uh, do you mind if I throw a couple at you go for it so well, Belinda says um she wants you to know that we'll be printing up Lynette L t-shirts really soon because it's the answer to all of life's problems <laughs> <laughs>
1: I haven't heard that before. I've got a friend who's a really keen cyclist and he says just cycling is the answer to the world's problem. So I think I think the more answers that are simple, the better, I reckon. I'm
0: not sure I would claim, claim to be. In, yeah, but thank you, Belinda. Um, Katie Turnbull says, um, how do you feel that your findings have been received and have they had the influence or effect you'd hoped for? And has and, and do you have any suggestions or advice for those of us implementing the recommendations?
1: Oh um, yeah. Look, um, I guess you know has it made a change. Well, I guess I mean the original starting point for this research was a question we wanted to answer for our research to enable us to again look at quality of care stuff. I think you know I'm I'm really pleased that this 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 bit of work has. Um, yeah, it's 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 had quite a lot of, um, you know, it's been disseminated pretty widely, which I think is fantastic. If people are taking it up, I think that's even better. Um, it's it's I'm mean, just really great to hear that it, it's useful for you, Rafael. Like that, you know, that's that's fantastic. I mean, you know, getting it into impact. I think it's. I, I don't think there's one particular thing that makes change. If, if I was going to say, you know. We know that there are uh, lots of areas that we need to improve care for people with musculoskeletal pain conditions. I think uh, I think of it as like, you know, there's a whole change process that needs to go around that, and that includes the way we train, you know, professionals. It includes the sort of language that the community uses. You know, how do we change all of these different things? I mean, this is one tiny thread in a tapestry of this changing sort of um, Hopefully, what you know, this, this this change process. I hope it's contributed um, toward that. Um, yeah, that, that'd be fantastic if it has. Um, so, yeah, but it's one. You know, I think how all these sort of conversations, what you're doing, is is is, is part of that process. So, that, you know, that, that it's these conversations that we we need to have.
0: Mm. It is, and you know, what you've done is an incredibly uh, valuable tool um, that you know, many people can use to help, you know, progress the conversation, but it's it sometimes it's a bit frustrating to me that, you know, a, a lot of what was, I can't really think of anything that was in those 11 recommendations that wasn't already sort of present in guidelines sort of circa 2001, you know, yeah, so, that's so right. this is, this is not fricking brand new Crazy no. cutting edge stuff. This is like, this is well established <laughs> science that's no. been around for a couple of decades. And still, we have this massive gap between what, you know, what academia, you know, what researchers know to be best treatment and, you know, a massive gap between what's actually happening in, you know, in most healthcare uh, and fitness, you know, settings. Mm-hmm. Do, you know, do you have any, uh, you know, I mean, obviously your whole research paper and all of your career is an effort to, Close that gap. Um, you know, do you have any any um, great words of wisdom or any message you want to share on a three hundred foot high billboard while you've got a platform <laughs> about how to do that, or yeah, in yeah, general? Yeah. So, so how, <laughs> well, you know, if if you're a move, if if you, I mean, you're, you're talking to probably you know fifty thousand movement professionals right now. So, you know, what would you like to say to them to? you know, to help them, because the people who listen to this show want to be the best possible version of, of themselves, and they want to give the best care to their clients. So, you know, I, how would you? what would you say to them?
1: I suspect the people who listen to your show already are a very good version, by, just by virtue of the fact they're listening to the show. They're already, um, you know, they're already showing interest, they're wanting to keep up to date, they're wanting to sort of... Yeah, to do the best by the clients. So I think I think they're, they're already a very motivated and and group doing you know, doing fantastic things. I guess I guess the the thing we're hoping with this work is that people might then be able to take it and then translate it into the way they work with people. Um, they can use if if they look at our recommendations, um, or look at these recommendations, they're not ours, they're recommendations which are out there. If they look at these recommendations and identify areas in which they don't feel comfortable or they don't feel they might know a lot, then, you know, seek seek some further development opportunities in, in those areas for themselves have those conversations with people you know, uh, people in your social networks, as well as clients that you see. Um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's uh, how to change the practice overall. I mean, that's the, that's the million-dollar question, isn't it? And, and clearly, you know, for a complex issue, there needs to be sort of multi-level sort of approaches. So, you know, they've in some countries, for example, in some of the Canadian provinces, just getting back to this issue of radiological imaging, they've shown great improvements in imaging just by getting referrers to imaging, having to, to get them to tick a little uh, referral sheet which specifies the reason why they're sending for that imaging. And they've shown huge cost savings, huge reductions in unnecessary imaging just by doing something simple like that. So that's a legislative thing. You know, if they don't tick this box, then they don't get their, you know, they they don't get their sort of federally funded refunds for this. So, you know, there's levels of that sort of level. Um, and then there's you know, and then there's the conversations and there's there's, there's the, you know community awareness and what, what's happening in terms of social marketing and this sort of stuff to the community at large, and what's happening you know at the at the, at the sort of at the level of you know professionals and clients as well, so. Yeah, it's a it's a you know it needs multi-level solutions to address that more comprehensively, um, and hopefully research is in is, is a way of we can help to address you know at different levels. I think um, listeners just having those conversations as a starting point is 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 great, is, is fantastic, and being being aware of what's going on themselves um, as as they would be is, is 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 you know part of that puzzle.
0: Right, So mm-hmm. introspect a little bit on these 11 recommendations, which I'll share in the show notes. And if you look at any of those and go, gee, heck, I don't know how to do that. Well, that's mm-hmm. that's a gap for you to go and self-educate a bit more. And um, you could actually do that by reading my book, which is called The Whole Person Framework, and which is essentially it's a whole book about how to do Lynette L. So... Um, mm-hmm. Uh, and or you could go and do a motivational interviewing course. You could, do, you know, there's lots of places that you could pick up these um, skills. Um, mm. We've got uh, another question here from Caroline Sawbridge in the Netherlands. She says, "Has knowing what you know changed your own life in any way?"
1: Uh, in relation to this particular bit
0: of research? Yeah. Well, I'm going to. You can interpret that however you want. <laughs>
1: um. Well I think I think you summed it up quite nicely before, but right? this is these are things we knew already. Um, for us it was really handy to put them together in a framework. So we could put them together and then we can use that as the basis for some of our ongoing work when we're looking, okay, well, um, we want to improve musculoskeletal pain care in this setting. Let's do let's 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 look at what's happening now and let's do something and then look, look at what's happening later. So, you know, it's very useful from that point of view. I think um in terms of changed uh, life in general, um, I mean, again, you know, part of part of change is, is what you do in your professional life and your personal life. This is this is a really, really, really enjoyable piece of work to be involved with, um, from the perspective of um, the the project itself and the, and the, and then the team. Um, yeah, and of course that influences you know, your enjoyment and your and how you think about your work and yeah. But, um, yeah, that's another thread in the tapestry, if you like.
0: Mm, and a very important thread. I think it's more than a thread. I think it's a whole row. Um, so, all right, so tell me um, something that I've sort of uh, been wanting to ask you about is integrated care. Um, so, firstly, what is it and um, how do you do it? Yeah, so
1: what... Well, I think that's one of the really, well, I think that's one of the really nice things that's happening at the moment. Um, so I, I guess, you know, if, if you look at a, this framework, for example, you know, there, there are probably a lot of clinicians around which practice with this sort of approach already. You know, and and these are clinicians who you know make really good connections with their with their clients and patients. These are um, they they communicate really effectively. They're informed by evidence in terms of what they do and what they say and how they interact and their decision-making. So, you know, these are sort of, you know, really high-level clinicians. Um, Some of the skills of these clinicians might fall within their traditional remit, but some of the skills might be a little bit different. So understanding, you know, psychosocial factors. You know, a lot of people who work in movement and exercise might not feel comfortable thinking about, you know, psychosocial factors that might be play with this person that I'm working with. Um, what I think is really nice about integrated models of care is that we sort of have a better understanding now of how to integrate all of these factors into what's offered to a person who lives with this, with this sort of condition. And so we sort of, you know, we're not sort of, um, we're not sort of saying that you have to do something completely different. We don't, you don't have to do something that's outside of your scope. Um, but here's some things that you can integrate in what you do. You know, if you can understand, if you, yeah. So I guess we're formalising perhaps what these really um, amazing uh, clinicians and professionals have probably done somewhat intuitively. So I think that's yeah. There's there's um, again, you know, talking about Peter O'Sullivan and cognitive functional therapy. I think his his um, you know his his approach is very much about this. Um, Yeah, there there are other models around as well, and I think that's really I think that's really exciting. Um, a part of that integrated care is, is, of course, knowing or probably working better in our teams as well. So, working, you know, exercise and movement professionals, working with, you know, with physios, working with medical professionals, you know, like working better, um, providing care to support an individual a person. So, yeah, I think that's a really, really uh, exciting area um, of development.
0: So, this is really what you described is moving essentially moving beyond this kind of modality-based model of treatment. So like, I'm a chiropractor, so when you come to me, I am going to crack you. Or I am a, you know, Pilates instructor, Mm. so when you come to me, I'm going to strengthen your core. And it's like, well, it's not saying you can't do that, and it's not saying that all of a sudden you need to start asking people about their childhood traumas and things. But yeah. but it's it's saying that everybody, whether they're a chiropractor, a Pilates instructor, or an exercise physiologist or a physiotherapist, needs to do, you know, basically the same set of, um, you know, things which are going to be, you know, forming a therapeutic alliance, person-centered care, open-ended questions, screening for red flags, you know, doing a physical assessment explaining the condition like all of these things and addressing psychosocial factors is one of those things and like you alluded you can there are lots of tools and questionnaires and and things that you can use or um you know and we're not talking about like uh you know addressing psychosocial factors we're not talking about like counseling someone for their depression we're talking about like coming out with oh, just yeah. practical strategies to help people manage stress like okay well what if you went for a walk in the evening instead of having a glass of wine you know like yeah, just or, or even
1: understanding that stress is a factor. You know, even understanding for that person, that person is highly stressed. You know, so it's, it's all, it's all, it's all. I guess it's all, um, it's all singing from the same song sheet. You know, this person has persistent pain. Um, you know, we're all of us involved in supporting this person. We have an understanding that you know around all of these different things. So, I'm, I'm an exercise professional. I need to work on this area, but I understand that this is part of their picture. Do you, know, do you know what I mean? I think, I think that's really, that, that's something that's I reckon really important as well, having these sort of frameworks. So we're all saying the same thing. I think one of the things that can be particularly destructive for, I think, for a patient is if they see someone who, you know, some um, professional who tells them this, all you need to do is this. And you'll be better. Oh, okay, righto. I'll do that. And they do that and then nothing changes or they see someone else, oh, no, 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 that's not true. You need to do this. And, you know, the, I, think, I think we've probably got many more tools now that we can start speaking the same language. Right. And I think that's really, really important, you know. And there might be a case of saying, look, you know, we know that um, we know or we don't even know. We don't know exactly know what's causing the pain, how we know these factors are all involved and I'm going to help you with this. Right, and maybe see someone else. If this becomes a problem for you, then you know perhaps you need to see someone else to help you with this area.
0: And I, I love what you just said there, and that r- reminds me of uh, the the blind men and the elephant. You know, it's like okay, yeah, the chiropractor says your back needs cracking, and the psychologist needs says you need therapy, and the physiotherapist says you need to do three sets of ten knee extensions with a theraband. You know, um, hmm. but in reality. Uh, it's probably more, pain probably works more like doesn't have a single cause and it's probably more, um, I think it's Adrian Lowe's cup metaphor, where basically you have a cup of resilience and you can pour, you know, stressors into that cup and you might pour in some lack of sleep and you might pour in some, you know, financial difficulties and you might, might pour in some low resilience and low physical activity and some smoking and then you might pour in some irritation of a disc in your low back and it's there's not any one of those things that causes it but the aggregate of them causes the cup to overflow and in in this metaphor the the overflow is pain and so yeah, it's, it's not the disc per se that caused the pain although it might be part of the package but and the great news is that we can't really do much about the disc a lot of the time but we actually can do stuff about a lot of those other factors and so sometimes it's it's the total package that has to be addressed not you know one particular element
1: yeah that's right And so if we if everyone understands what could be part of that package then i think that's a lot more supportive for people hmm. in that situation so
0: integrated care then it have i captured it correctly it's basically don't just stick to your knitting don't just you know do the modality that you're trained to do in you know exclusively like be aware that people's you know thoughts emotions feelings expectations and beliefs impact profoundly upon their healthcare trajectory and that you know you can develop simple skills like listening skills that will you know make a significant difference to your uh, client's outcomes and you know in situations where it's beyond your skill you can refer to a mental health professional or other professional but that doesn't mean you have to stop working with the person you know they still need to keep moving yeah that's right yep um all right The last thing I want to talk about is I I just want to go back to the, you know, your work with Aboriginal Australians and this uh, itrogenesis paper and more broadly the sort of the disparities between health outcomes, um, particularly I'm thinking in musculoskeletal pain, uh, because I know that's your area of interest and mine as well, for different groups. And we know that Aboriginal Australians have poorer health outcomes in almost every domain that I've... You know, looked at. Um, you know, so they have more diabetes, more heart disease, you know, etc. Um, how how is it in musculoskeletal pain?
1: Yeah. So again, um, you know, like I'm I'm lucky to be working with a great team of people, um, of researchers, clinicians, uh, cross cultural team of people, and we're really interested in uh, perhaps trying to better recognise and address some of these disparities. So we know, as you've said. We know um, that there are disparities in health status and these probably haven't been super well recognised in terms of musculoskeletal pain. Um, and so we're really, uh, we know that the prevalence, we know that the burden, we know that these things are disproportionately high amongst certain subpopulations or certain population groups uh, and that's certainly true for, you know, Aboriginal Australians um, and we're so we're, we're Doing an ongoing um, body of work to to look at ways that we can address address this. Um, yeah, it's it's you know it's really rewarding work. I think um, I think there's a yeah. It, they, they say that if you can, I think um, if you can work, if you can do you know useful and and good research. Uh, and this is what people say in an aboriginal healthcare setting, then that's going to be good and useful research you know for other settings and um, And so yeah, I'm fortunate to be that's an area I think is really
0: important and, and 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 working with on an ongoing basis mm. i'm I'm fascinated to to uh, you know learn a little bit about what you've discovered because you know traditionally if it was something like I don't know heart disease or diabetes, right you know and and I read, which I have, that Aboriginal Australians have, you know, more di- diabetes than uh, every the, the general population in Australia and they it's more severe and they're more disabled by it and they die, for, die from it more commonly. I would think, well, probably a lot of that has got to do with access to healthcare, right? So people who are living regionally remote areas, they probably have less access to healthcare. People with lower socioeconomic status have less access to healthcare. So, you know, to me, I'm sure it wouldn't explain all of it, but it would explain, uh, you know, I would imagine at least some part of it. Whereas in musculoskeletal pain, it seems like it's the opposite because, you know, your 2013 paper found that actually greater exposure to healthcare was associated with worse disability. So do we need to get yeah. these people less healthcare? Like, what's the solution?
1: Yeah, well, I, think, I, I don't think it's just about healthcare in general. I mean, obviously, um, you know, the, the context around health is, is complex and it's, um, yeah, access to healthcare is, is part of it. I think access to healthcare is... It's ask, I guess it's access to the right healthcare delivered by the right people. Um, one one area we're doing some work in at the moment, uh, myself and a number of colleagues, but in particular uh, Professor Dawn Bessarab and Charmaine Green, um, who uh, two um, very wise Aboriginal colleagues. Um, one of the areas that we feel we can modify things to make it better is in this area of communication. Remember, have patient-centred care. Is really critical. Um, so in the, in the context of musculoskeletal pain in, 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 in our work there, we know it's the foundation of what we would call high-value care. We know that in most cases, communication can be improved, but this is particularly so for situations where there's, you know, these cultural differences between um, uh, clinicians and, 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 and patients. And so we've um, done a bit of work looking to... Um, Improve the effectiveness of communication via a model of communication we call clinical yarning. And so this model basically reconceptualises really uh, clinical communication, so communication between uh, a clinician or a professional and, a, and an Aboriginal client. Instead of being sort of like a, a consultation type, more traditional sort of interview in which, in which, generally speaking, questions are fired at the person and that can be pretty off-putting, we talk about having a clinical yarn. So we talk about having a social yarn, a diagnostic yarn and then a management yarn. And so these principles around yarning is really about having conversations. It's about getting to know the person. It's about perhaps sharing something about yourself first as well or being willing to share something about yourself so in order to find common ground. Um, it's about understanding the person's story and through understanding their story gathering the soil sort of health information you need so it's a sort of like a storying approach and then it comes to the management yarn it's about coming up with it's about coming up with a health plan together and so the basis of that is explaining health information in terms that make sense to people so I mean we we, um, we do quite a lot of uh, work in training um Practitioners in in this model, and one of the common bits of feedback we receive is, "Oh, I, I could use this for anybody," and we usually say, "Yeah, that's right, you could." Hmm. And so, um, yeah, so that's that's one area. So, um, so I think, um, yeah, it's yeah, I think it, 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 it's a complex situation. One area we 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 think we can perhaps make a bit of difference is to improve people's experiences of care, because we know that. You know, communication barriers can really be um, very destructive. We know that um, it means that patients don't understand what's going on and therefore they can't engage in, you know, how to self-manage their condition. We know that in other situations it puts people off and people don't come back. They just develop a distrust of healthcare because none of it makes sense. We also know that if you can engage people in their healthcare, if you explain things in terms people understand, um, then you can really start to develop that sort of, more collaborative approach to, to care. And that's that's what you're after.
0: Mm. What 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 you say there sort of makes me wonder that about um, our sort of our belief systems around, you know, when you say like explaining um, things in, in terms that people will understand and be able to relate to, uh, makes me think about our kind of our cultural zeitgeist around pain. Like in the West, we have this very biomedical, you know, folk-framed, um zeitgeist around pain. Like we we we, you know, like started with the railway spine epidemic of the eighteen twenties or whatever, where we thought of going, you know, travelling at twenty miles an hour on a railway carriage was going to be terribly damaging to our spine. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we know we have this very biomedical focus. We explain pain by disc bulges and fractures and degeneration and stuff. But I wonder I mean, and I don't really have any knowledge of this, but I wonder if you might, and that's why I'm interested to ask you, like, are you aware of any you know, non-Western cultures where pain is framed through a non-mechanical lens, like maybe through a spiritual lens or something? And and if so, are there any, is there more or less disability in those cultures? Do you know anything about that topic?
1: Um, well, there, I mean, there's, there's certainly a bit of work in an Aboriginal um, uh, health research space. There's a bit of work um, that has, has historically referred to pain as not disabling um, because of just those beliefs. I think. I think what our work shows is just that. I guess the pervasiveness of that, just that Western approach to pain that you're talking about. Um, it's yeah, it, and you know we know how well that's worked, sort of thing. Um, so yeah, I, I guess it's hard because you can't you can't really go back to traditional models. You know, like tradition. Yeah, I think we need to just change the narrative around our. You know our sort of contemporary understandings of pain in general. I think we need to be much more um, inclusive of what the patient's beliefs are and we need to just de-threaten in whatever way is best for that person. (laughs) Um, Yeah. Uh, Certainly there's, you know, there's evidence that sort of more traditional or Western, if you like, approaches to pain have not been super effective in a lot of circumstances. And maybe that's due to, you know, societal shifts about other areas of healthcare, like the medicalisation um, you know, obviously, there's been a lot of lot of stuff written about over-medicalisation of pain conditions. You know, perhaps, perhaps that's it. Perhaps, um, as you talked about, you know, perhaps we need to train resilience um, to those sort of conditions.
0: Hmm. Ivan, it's been a real fascinating discussion, and I'm really thrilled to have got to speak with you. Um, so, you know, like you are, I, I don't have many. Great heroes in the world, but you're you're one of them. So um, thank you very much for speaking with me.
1: Well, yeah, look, lovely to have a conversation, Raphael. And um, yeah, I'd I'd hate to be a disappointing hero.
0: (laughs) No, you're um, you know, you you've done great work, and you know, don't worry, I'm not putting you on a pedestal. I know you take your pants off one leg at a time, but um, (laughs) but you you're doing some great work, uh, and I was I was actually quite surprised when. I... You know, I told you about that um, iatrogenesis <laughs> um, study before we were on air, and um, you were sort of, you know, very diplomatically nodding and agreeing with me. I didn't realise you were the lead author on it. So, um, oh. yeah, <laughs> thanks for that. Oh,
1: well, yeah, no, no no, problem. Really good to have a conversation. And, and yeah, thanks for, thanks for doing the podcast and, and the interest of your listeners. It's fantastic. Thanks a lot, Ivan. Thanks,
0: Raphael.